papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. The Media Project is a half hour of commentary and analysis from Northeast Public Radio, and we are happy to have you with us. I'm Rex Smith, editor-at-large of the Times Union, with Dr. Alan Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, and this week with investigative journalist Rosemary Armeo and the longtime publisher of the Daily Freeman of Kingston, Ira Fussfeld. So here we are. Dr. Shartok, are you ready to be insightful and analytical today? I, 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 the answer is, I suppose. There's always a first time. <laughs> okay, Ira, I'll write that one down. <laughs> one stroke and we are underway. All right, I want to put forth a proposition to you all, which is, you know, we've talked a lot about news literacy, about people understanding how the media operates. And uh, I'm going to put forth the proposition that one of the key ways you can analyze the quality of the content that you're getting, whether you're looking at a reputable journalism organization or not, is how they handle their mistakes. Because mm-hmm. the saying to err is human, you know, we all make mistakes in a little bit. I think we should all unburden ourselves of our worst errors and confess some of our sins. But we have some examples here of how in the recent days we have seen errors handled. A big one at the New York Times that we need to make reference to. Our listeners might have missed it. There was this wildly popular podcast called Caliphate, uh, which won lots of awards for the New York Times, took people inside what was going on in ISIS, allegedly with the tales of someone who had been a killer. Now it turns out the Times is retracting the story and a lot of other terrorism reporting involving a particular reporter, Rukmini Kalamachi. So My question is, how did they do and what does this tell us? Does this mean that the standards of the times we ought to be doubting at this point? Well, I think they did very well in the uh, transparency with which they announced their mistake. News organizations, I believe, generally speaking, set themselves apart from other industries in their willingness to be introspective and admit mistakes. So in that sense, good on them. I think it may have taken, it seems to have taken an awfully long time for it to get to this stage, which gives them a next instead of a check. And and then ultimately it comes down to how does this happen at an organization like the New York Times, which does so much great journalism. But when they have a case like this, and there have been others, it's just astounding to me that this could happen. My problem is they didn't actually retract the story, as you said, Rex. Didn't they just clarify and correct? And missed the idea that the central fact of the story, that this guy was a terrorist, was wrong, which suggests that the story should never have been reported in the first place. That's far more than a correction or a clarification. So all of the hoopla around it, they trotted out their executive editor to do the mea culpa, and they supposedly it's so transparent. I I still think there's a problem. Margaret Sullivan, who we all admire, former public editor for the New York Times, came out and still, while 
saying, oh, this is terrible, big mistake, still was calling that reporter a remarkably talented journalist. I, I don't think remarkably talented journalists get the central fact of a, a multi-part important series incorrect. That's that a good overly point. harsh? No, I don't think so. The fact is the Times stood fully behind the story initially, even though there were questions raised about it, until this alleged terrorist, a guy named Chaudhry, I, I can't remember his first name, but Chaudhry was arrested on terrorism hoax charges in Canada. He's in Canada, not in the USA. Chiroz, Chiroz Chaudhry is his name. And until he publicly admitted to making up the stories, the Times stood fully behind Caliphate. So I think you have a good point that should have been, what, quicker to, to act on this? And how do we feel about making the mistake in the first place? Alan, what's your uh, take on this? Well, the New York Times is in a different category than everybody else. I was astounded by the fact that they offered to and Pulitzer agreed to give back their Pulitzer Prize that they won for that. Am I wrong about that? No, they won a Peabody. I, I don't What's know if they won a Pulitzer. No, I don't know about the Pulitzer. Polk. It was a Polk Award, I believe. Polk Award. Those, those P awards. <laughs> Peabody. It was one of those P awards. <laughs> yes. In any case, hey, look, it's a black eye. There's no question about it. And the New York Times is the best newspaper in the world. I don't think there's any question about it. And they're going to make mistakes like everybody makes mistakes. So um, I'm not surprised to see them doing the mea culpa that they're doing. I believe the story's gone already. Okay, wait. Now, I have to, I have to come down harder on this. I'm very harsh on errors by journalists because... In an era when we're accused of fake journalism, mistakes are deadly. And yes, we all make them because we're human, but this was a massive mistake. And this is not a reporter who has been flawless in the past. There have been problems with her reporting before. So the fact that this went through all the checks and errors and counterbalances that supposedly are in place at the time, I think it's really troubling. This is the paper of Jason Blair. Wasn't that supposed to eliminate this sort of, oh, it'll never happen again? And now it has. Good point. Mm -hmm. The only point that I would make that would differ with that is that just to point out that we remember Jason Blair, his fabrications, precisely because it was so unusual. And the Times, who had this young reporter making outright fabrications, and this led to the departure of the executive editor at the time, Howard Howell Raines. So it is good that that kind of thing is exposed. And then when we have that kind of serial fabrication, good news organizations take care of it. And I think you have a good point, Rosemary, that the Times has not quite done that. The Caliphate podcast is still available for download, unedited. It should have been pulled off the website, and I don't understand why this person still has a job, quite frankly. That is just too big an error for what we call the, the world's best news organization, if true. This is quite troubling. It ought to be handled. And I think it may be that we're looking at it differently in part because this young reporter, that is Rukmini Kalamachi, is the kind of reporter that the Times and everybody else is looking for these days. Yep. Very capable on multiple platforms, digitally smart, a woman of color. But it is difficult, a gifted storyteller, just really terrific. But Having a problem with accuracy is kind of the fundamental sin of journalism. <laughs> I don't know how you can avoid that. I was just going to say in this era, with so many people in the public already distrustful of what it is we do, when this kind of mistake occurs and it's a whopper, it throws in doubt everything that they do going forward. Okay, so just for those of us who are a little bit more naive than the three, you know, brains that we have otherwise speaking on, on the program, what exactly was it? So... This guy, the source, turns out to be a liar, right? Entirely, yes. 
He claims to have photographs showing ISIS members killing people, that he took part in these killings, described life inside ISIS, uh, inside Syria. It turns out not to have been true at all, was not there, was not a part of ISIS. The photographs were actually easily downloaded from online sources. There were not photographs he had taken. It was actually a huge, the entire story is fake. So you're all editors, have been editors, are editors. So my question is this. How do you know when somebody's lying to you? Other than the twitch, right? (laughs) Other than the twitch. I don't know, but I, that's a very hard thing to say. I think it depends upon the story. Uh, and, uh, but, but when you have a mistake, when you have an error of this magnitude, you need to deal with it more forthrightly, more aggressively than I think we've seen here. Alan has a point that this is a kind of error that should have been vetted before publication rather than fixing it now. She's dealing with terrorism organizations. I mean, that's filled with remote locations, foreigners, people who lie for a living. So there should have been a high degree, higher than usual degree of skepticism to begin with. And I don't know because I didn't edit the story, but what was her proof besides this one guy talking, the number of sources? How did we back up what he said? And was there any doubt on her part? And other big mistakes, there's always doubt when you go back and look at the case. Somebody else in the newsroom goes, this doesn't comport with what I found on, on another story. Or the reporter herself will say, well, I don't really have support for it, but I think it's true because when I hear those things, you pay attention and you look for additional proof. Did that happen in this case? Well, you know, I'm tempted to say no, I don't think it did. Yeah. Do you think the platform makes a difference in terms of the impact this has had? In other words, we're talking about a podcast, not a story that appeared across the top of the front page. Does that change their approach to making the story to begin with and how stringent they were in assuring its accuracy? I think that's a good question. Did it change the standards and should it? And I think it probably does have a difference in both the verification and in how seriously they take the error. If this had been a story stretched across the top of the front page, this is a 12-part podcast that won international awards. I think they would have taken it more seriously if this were print. You think that's right? I think it's the same thing you mentioned before. This was a, a young, gifted supposedly reported that they want and that those kind of podcasts, those multi-part award-winning podcasts is a platform that they want to command. And so they wanted this to be true. And I think that lowered the standard, even though they, they should be judged the same as print stories, they were not. And if it had been a print story, there would have been the same problem because they still would have wanted that story. So following on what Rosemary just said and recognizing the diversity of the reporter, I guess we should ask, is an editor more likely to believe somebody who comes from a different background? I think historically an editor is more likely to believe somebody who comes from that editor's own background. You know, if you (laughs) – I think it's – Yeah, I don't think that there's uh, turning the other eye because a person comes from a traditionally underrepresented class. If anything, editors have been guilty of just going along with those who reflect their own biases and backgrounds. Yeah, but don't you think that the degree of trust for any reporter is based on the pyramid that that reporter has starting to build from the beginning of his or her tenure at the newspaper? If her work has been has been good you're more likely to to, uh, write it. In this case, apparently not. So why did they feel obliged to trust her? 
when you look at the big mistakes in journalism, there's always a giant scoop involved. The editors want the story to be true. Look at Jimmy's World. That was the Washington Post. Young, black, beautiful reporter. That also played a role in it. The editors really were flirting with her more than editing her. And um, she gets in a story that's a total whopper, wins the Pulitzer Prize for it, and also had to give it back. And reporters in their own newspaper were saying, this story cannot be true. It doesn't make any sense. Listen to us. And they did not listen. Bob Woodward was an editor on that story. So it happens to the best of them when you really, really want a story. And terror is one of the biggest stories going on in the world. And Kalamachi comes in with this, you know, blockbuster of a story. And it's on a brand new media that they're trying to win over because young people love podcasts. So I think you just naturally reduce your own skepticism. Like an editor has to go into every story disbelieving every word in it, has to prosecute it. And that didn't happen. And it isn't just uh, minority reporters. Who is the reporter who had the story for the New York Times about weapons of mass destruction? Judith Miller. She was a white woman. Same thing. She had a hell of a story with supposedly unassailable sources, and it was all bogus. So by contrast, let's look at a different kind of error. Let's say intentional errors. This has to do with the claims of election fraud that we've heard from the right-wing media. The most notable and visible person of that is Lou Dobbs, who is on Fox Business, who has come full out with all of the gobbledygook that the accusations of fraud that Rudy Giuliani and others have lobbed against an election technology company called Smartmatic. And Dobbs, as well as people on Newsmax and OANN, these new right-wing platforms that have been getting so much support from the president, have been going on and on about how this is supposedly linked to Dominion voting machines, linked to Hugo Chavez, and this whole vast conspiracy theory of the election that has Donald Trump fired up and that he wants us all to believe. Now, suddenly, a few days later, Dobbs on a weekend show puts out what appears to be an analysis of Open Source Election Technology Institute. And the guy comes out and says, well, here is the stuff about Smartmatic, and it is a pre-taped segment where it shoots down the conspiracy theories, those theories that Dobbs himself had been putting out. Now it turns out that that segment was in response to a legal demand letter that was sent by Smartmatic to Fox News, Newsmax, One American News, demanding a retraction. And it seems to me that we have something similar in kind going on here because there's fake reporting in this case, intentionally fake reporting. And the corrective process that they put out there is to air a segment that somebody else has produced to basically meet the legal demands that are saying, we're going to sue you. What it wasn't just Dobbs, too. You had Janine Firo and Maria Bartiromo also spreading these same stories. Yeah. Is the correction that they have offered, in other words, this piece that they produced, is it enough to avoid paying the price? Legal. I don't think they couched it as a correction. I think the way they delivered it to their viewers was in the form of an interview with it, with somebody who had a contrary point of view. I don't think any of those Fox people have yet said, we made a mistake here and here's what we're doing to clear the record. And yet we do understand that they did it, obviously, to protect themselves. It may not have been a correction, but it was in reaction to having gotten caught, wasn't it? I think there's a really valuable lesson in here in how to combat fake news. I don't care why they're doing it. They're doing it for the first time ever. They're rolling back their earlier stories. 
And if they don't say may a couple, they're still saying, hey, we don't have any evidence. It's bald. And it came from the target threatening legal action. So I hope to see more of this in the future when there is fake news that you that you threaten or actually bring legal action. Well, but I don't think any of us who are who have been in this business more than 10 minutes are eager to see uh, people come forward willy-nilly threatening us with the lawsuits. You know, it's hard to want to defend Fox on this, but I'm not crazy about the idea of these defamation suits. I, I think Ben Smith in the New York Times, their media columns, who wrote last week about this, said that, in fact, these outlets, these conservative outlets, are extremely concerned about the potential penalty. But even he was saying, uh, I'm usually not a fan of the defamation suits. That's the key word, as usually. We are in different times. And the conservatives already bring defamation suits that are ridiculous. We've seen them against CNN by Devin Nunes. And those cases are getting thrown out. So the big media need to stand up if they want to defend real media, real reporting from fake news charges. This is a way to do it. Use the courts. And this is real. That is, this is really fake. That is, this company has a legitimate complaint here that I think could well lead to some significant financial pressure. If nothing else, these outfits that we're hoping to expand, Newsmax and One American News, I would think will find access to capital for that expansion much more difficult to come by because they have this liability hanging over their heads. They knew exactly what they were doing in doing this. And my point about the correction is this, that I think that Maria Bartiromo aired this segment on her show and she said, well, so that's where we stand. We'll keep investigating. It was not a correction. That's a good point uh, Mm -hmm. that you made, that this was instead just these outfits airing what they did to try to do the minimal amount they could to reduce their liability. But I suspect that we'll see and hear more of this, and there could be an impact. In any case, we've all made mistakes. I mean, I, I, I remember as a young reporter making a mistake that was so egregious that the, uh, the great investigative journalist Bob Green, who is my boss, put out a memo to the entire staff in the newsroom without naming me by name, but referring to what I had done as the height of idiocy. <laughs> and I, yeah. I thought that it was the end of my career, having committed the height of idiocy. Now you're hosting the media project. And not, well, not only <laughs> not I only that, Rex. <laughs> not only that, Rex, but you are a longtime editor of a paper. That's the worst thing that was ever done to you. What's the worst thing you ever did to another reporter who got it wrong? Well, we did take away a job of someone. That's like, what else can you do? <laughs> it's called being fired, right? Yeah. Ultimately, you need to get rid of miscreants, people who are sloppy with facts. I mean, an editor really has a responsibility to assure accuracy, and you try to do what you can. I think one of the difficulties is, you know, we're all embarrassed when we get a tone wrong. You know, here's an example. The Kansas City Star in the past week has done a major series of reporting on how the newspaper has in the past handled coverage of the black community in Kansas City. And the editor wrote a front page letter saying, we're sorry. We know that we have not done right by the black citizens of our community. That's what you do when when your tone, your whole approach has been wrong, which is a different matter from getting the facts wrong. But that is a more typical and more systemic error. That's the more typical kind of error that we all make. We just we don't handle our reporting as well as we should. Right. I think that's a remarkable story out of Kansas City. It was powered by this new breed that we're seeing increasingly, and it's such a good thing, of young minority reporters in newsroom demanding a whole different tone and take and approach to reporting on communities that have traditionally been ignored or downplayed. And they didn't just 
make it an opinion piece. They reported it. It's filled with facts about how the paper over decades systematically downplayed or belittled black concerns. And then the editor came out with the apology that you're talking about. I think it's remarkable and such a really good sign of something healthy happening in the news business where we're looking at our own performance, our own institutional role in racial injustice in this country. It's a remarkable thing that happened in Kansas City. I, I pulled up the whole thing. It's lengthy. I want to read it all because it's so different than the sort of we're going to include more blacks and Latinos and women and all this in newsrooms. And then basically they ended up writing the same kind of stories that white middle class reporters had written. This is completely different. And they persuaded their own bosses to the reality of what they were reporting. That's great. Don't you agree? Yes, across 10 broadsheet pages, these articles examined itself, how it had disregarded the civil rights struggle. I was taken by the anecdote how there was a deadly flood in the late 70s, and the, the story said that paper had fixated on the property damage of the wealthy shopping areas instead of the people who had died, including eight black residents. And so they're, um, you know, looking back at what they have done and trying in retrospect to set matters right. That's another mm-hmm. way of fixing the flaws of journalism, places where we have not done as well as we should. It is it is remarkable. So, you know, we've often said the problem with making mistakes in in a newspaper is that it's there in black and white. It's out there in public, and the mistake is out the door. It's published. Same thing here on the air. You've aired a mistake. How do you deal with it if it's out there? Of course, you can run a correction, but it's hard for that to happen, and it doesn't ever quite ameliorate the error. One of the impulses is to try to do a, a make-up, a make-good, which is also not really really a good idea that if you have committed an offense against a particular organization or something, well, let's do another story that's nice to the organization. That is not good journalism because your goal is to get things right. And I think we need to be just a little bit more transparent and be able to show people Fortunately, with digital, we can show people where we went wrong and what we did right. And I hope that as we move forward with greater news literacy, greater understanding, digital might help us to be able to show people what's right and what's wrong. And we might actually begin to make progress toward rebuilding trust with readers, listeners. Do we have time to discuss the uh, reporter who uh, wound up in a social relationship with her subject matter, the Bloomberg reporter? Social romantic re- yeah. relationship. Yeah, well. Romantic. It won't be the first time, will it? I mean, sex is a function of opportunity, and when somebody is covering literally and figuratively somebody else, that's something that is going to happen, isn't it? No sex. There was no sex in this case. It was an attraction that is bizarre and weird. But it has happened, right? That somebody who is doing a story meets somebody else, and that it leads to sex. And then the question is, what happens after that? In other words, do you say, okay, now you can't do this story anymore, you can't cover the speed anymore? Is that how it works? In this case, the reporter was a Bloomberg reporter who fell into a relationship, weird and bizarre as it is, without sex but romance, with Pharma Bro. The guy, Shrelly, is that how we say his name? Yeah, Shrelly. raised the price, right, who raised the price of um, much-needed HIV drugs by 5,000%. He's an execrable human being. And she starts out covering him, actually had some scoops on him, and then ends up wanting, she leaves her husband, she leaves her job. And I don't see any fault by Bloomberg except for hiring this person who her judgment certainly should have been called into question. But when they found out about their relationship and the weirdness of going on between them, they let her go. 
she would have been pulled from the beat, but in this case, she offered to resign, and so they accepted it. Well, well, wait a second, Rosemary. You you know very well as an editor, you've hired a lot of people in your time. You can't always know what's what somebody you say. Well, they shouldn't have hired them. How do you know? How do you really know that somebody has an emotional part of their being that is going to lead to this? You you can't possibly tell, can you? Yeah, I think that's actually a really good question, and we usually frame it as journalists in terms of recruiting people for a police force. How do you know they're going to be brutal ahead of time? And I do think that I think recruiting for newsroom jobs is very difficult. I was never great at it. And um, I, I'd like to hear the ideas of my co-panelists on that. She mm. should not have been working for Bloomberg. Oh, I don't know how you can tell that in advance. I wish I had to say that every hire I made of the probably a couple hundred people that I hired over the years, I wish I could say that every one was great. And I feel like most of them were, since some of them are probably listening. Uh, but uh, I don't know how you can tell that in advance. But I do think that Bloomberg, to its credit, acted expeditiously once they found out about what was going on. Well, yeah, that's all you can hope, that after the fact, you know, you take some kind of action. But we at WAMC, we've been pretty good, and we have an awful lot of people who are with us from day one and haven't left. But every once in a while, you find somebody who goes off the rails. And I don't know how you can tell before the fact. You can ask a lot of questions, but you can't always find out what you want to know. I think one thing that you can do, maybe this answers Rosemary's question somewhat, is you probe the ethical standards of the person you're hiring and make that uh, an important element of the hiring process, to just make sure that the person you're hiring has a sense of the ethical responsibility of journalism to be independent and aggressive in what they're approaching. I, I don't know how else you can handle this kind of a thing in advance. I think I mean, editors have to keep a watch on source relationships. She was depending on this one source, the top guy, to the exclusion of all other sources, that should always be a cause of concern for editors. And it was not in this case. They, they might have picked up on it earlier. She ended up telling them about it. They didn't find it out on their own. She took a book leave at one point to go follow him around. She was, I don't know. I hope our listeners will read the story about her. It's quite an interesting piece. E-L-L-E magazine. Is that right? Right. And the Washington Post also did a shorter take on it. The L piece is written by a former colleague of the of the reporter who remains sympathetic to her. She's kind of pathetic when you read the whole thing. Well, the punchline is that Chiarelli seems to have turned his back on her. She thinks that she's waiting for him to get out of jail and they'll get married, and he's not even returning her email anymore. See how these interesting things that involve human relationships get so interesting that we can't even walk away from them, and because we've run out of time on this show, so sorry. I guess it shows what kind of stories attract us all. That's all we have time for in the Media Project. Rosemary Armeo, Ira Fussfeld, Alan Shartok, and I'm Rex Smith. Thanks to our producer, David Gustina. And we thank you for joining us this week on the Media Project. Got a free new world to build. Meet the people, that's a thrill. All together fits the bill. Oh, newspapermen are such interesting people. The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is editor-at-large of the Times Union. Rosemary Armeo is an investigative journalist and former chair of the Department of Journalism at the University at Albany. And Ira Fussfeld is the public Publisher Emeritus of the Daily Freeman. You can listen to or podcast the Media Project anytime at WAMC.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. To 
Constitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.